If you turn on the TV, check Twitter, or follow the news in any other way, you'll see that climate change is happening all around the world. Whether it's wildfires, hurricanes, floods, and other natural disasters, it's clear that there's no more time to waste in the fight against climate change. And Nasrina Saim has made it her life's mission to combat climate change. But she has managed to blend two worlds youth-led grass movements, and policy-level change, all while sitting at the same table as heads of state from all over the world. She is now the chair of the UN Secretary-General's Youth Advisory Group on Climate Change and has been turning heads with her powerful speeches. During Climate and Biodiversity Week at Expo 2020 Dubai, Nisreen discussed the importance of having youth-led policy change in the fight against climate change. I'm Tarq Alalemi, and this is People and Planet, a podcast from EXO 2020 Dubai's program for People and Planet, where changemakers from all over the world break down what it'll take to create a sustainable future for our planet. An important and vital topic to inspire other people to take action. journey through space and time. An extension of our natural wealth. It's us together. It's so beautiful. the latest offenders. Optimize women's contribution to security to build a brighter tomorrow. So Nasreen, you are an advocate for the transformative power of young people. You are a champion of a livable future. Your work is driven by a deep moral obligation towards people and planet. Your climate action is grounded in the principle of equity. And you're someone who's deeply attuned to the state of the earth every single day and what it will take to chart a path towards a climate safe future for all generations. And you're someone who have had the pleasure of meeting a number of times on your climate advocacy journey and have inspired every single time. Welcome, Nasreen. It's an honor to have you here with us today. Thank you very much, Tariq. The honor is mine and I'm equally happy to be here with you today. Uh, thank you. And I'd love to start from the beginning. Uh, if you could tell me a little bit about your upbringing and how the environment around you inspired you to take this path in life, both as a child and a young teen going up in Khartoum, Sudan. Actually, um, Sudan is one of the countries that have a lot of problems uh, and a lot of challenges, let me say, um, from different perspectives. Um, one of them is, of course, of course, uh, the environmental and the climate change, as it's one of the very vulnerable countries to climate change. Food shortages and risk of illness are key concerns in South Sudan right now after severe flooding hit the country, the worst in nearly six decades. The environmental crisis is affecting more than 700,000 people and isolating parts of the country. CNN's Clarissa Ward is in South Sudan, reporting on the toll it's taken on residents. But uh, my start in, in climate action was a bit different. It was more of a um, technical start than the, the local engagement in the community. Um, I started university um, as a freshman 10 years ago and um, as I was saying to some people, it's my 10th anniversary <laughs> in climate action and environmental work. And um, I was like uh, in freshman at the university and uh, University of, uh, of Khartoum had a lot of problems, um, mostly politically, so we used to close a lot. 
and in one of uh, my closures I was thinking of how to actually um, link uh, physics which was the thing I was doing at that time and uh, with political science because most of the problems we were facing at that time especially as students was political problems um, and uh, in the first time when the university closed I used Google a lot and I discovered something called um, science diplomacy which is used in science in diplomatic discussions and the two biggest topics in science diplomacy was actually water because people countries uh, share water normally the Nile basing are 11 countries for example and um, if we counted how many countries in the Mediterranean so there is a lot of, of shared uh, in responsibilities but also shared interest in water in different country so there's a lot of science included in that topic but also a lot of diplomacy and a lot of uh, political discussion and the second topic was of course climate change and at that time I could see I could relate more to the climate change uh, of the reality around me than the water so I actually moved in that uh, sector but it was mainly uh, trying to find a way of linking two passions together which is natural science and human science. Thank you and was there um, also a sense of your upbringing with your family um, that they also had an interest in environmental issues or were you the first person uh, in your family really to to take interest in this area? No, actually, I wasn't the first person, and it, it it happened very strangely. I think in the second year of my volunteerism with the Sudanese Environment Conservation Society, I had my membership card with me, so my grandma asked me, what is this? So I decided to explain about the environment and the organization and the work we do and stuff. So she said, okay, okay, nice to hear that. And then she went to her room and I was hearing her like looking in the, into something like shh, 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 shh. <laughs> And then she went out holding something. I think she got it from a bag or something. And it, she showed it to me and it was her membership in the same organization in the 80s. <laughs> I was like, what? Um, and then um, uh, she told me that my mother was also a volunteer in the late uh, 90s early 20s um, so I was the third generation female to be actually environmental activist uh, and luckily in the same organization also and uh, it was amazing because then I realized that maybe it wasn't a coincidence to have this environmental awareness inside of me maybe I was raised like this so yeah I mean uh, it's sometimes your destiny takes you to places but also sometimes how you raise the kids to grow up um, takes them to the same destiny without them or no, or you even knowing it. Beautiful. And you, you've walked and followed in the footsteps of your ancestors. Indeed, as you said, embarking on a journey of climate action uh, from 2012, exactly 10 years ago. Uh, your destiny has brought you to an experience that has spanned working at the grassroots level all the way to the policy level. Was there a moment in your climate activism journey where you decided to enter into the political space of climate negotiations? I noticed that very little change happened when we only the people on the ground change stuff where the government is not changing the policies or the legislation and especially with climate change because we are talking about global emissions. The world is experiencing some of its most extreme weather patterns on record, from floods and intense rains to heat waves. 
and greenhouse gases from human activity like burning fossil fuels and generating electricity are contributing significantly to these hazards. Now, Africa has been responsible for less than 4% of the emissions, but it is by far the most vulnerable region to the effects of climate change. Now, among these, experts predict that most parts of the continent will experience much drier conditions. That's already the case in parts of northern Kenya, which have not seen rain for more than a year. So I said, OK, then this is a bigger problem. And, and even if we continued working only in our communities, it will not be solved. And we will be, uh, we will be damaged anyway. It, we still suffer from floods. We will still suffer from um, burning um, summers. We will be still also suffering from less, less rain or more rain. So I was thinking also how to make an influence on the bigger level. And of course, multilateralism and the climate change negotiation was the door to actually do that. And what is it that you learn from being in those spaces that are behind, um, behind closed doors that the media can't see? Uh, what have you learned about being in those kinds of rooms with, uh, with your fellow delegates? So unfortunately, there is a triangle. I call it the triangle of transparency. <laughs> and I mean by it is there is three things that actually control and holding us back from making progress. Uh, number one, oil and gas corporations and companies and private sector. Number two, interest. Number three, money. And Unfortunately, the, the oil and gas sector and corporation companies and private sector have a lot of influence and a lot of money and a lot of power in many places and many sectors. Um, so political will alone, unfortunately, without um, a plan B to actually support the economy, political will not be enough. Um, people also must be aware that if we really all want to shift to zero emissions, then there's a lot of luxuries that we are having right now that we should let go. I'm not talking about basic life. I'm talking about extra things that we don't we don't need. We don't have to have 12 pairs of shoes. We don't have to have 12 jeans. We don't have to have a dozen and half a dozen of, of suits and stuff like this. So when, when we have the political will, when we have supportive private sector, and when we have a community that is ready to actually let go the uh, luxuries that we don't need this is the only moment where all of the negotiations will actually uh, reach a place but now if the people are ready to ready to let go political uh, will uh, is not there if people are ready to give and political will is there the economical support private sector is not there if private sector and people agree, the politicians will back up. So there's always something missing. And unfortunately, without having all of these um, things together at some point, in some place, it will be very hard to make a mega change and, and mega steps instead of the very small and little and very slow progress that we are making right now. Thank you. That's a very powerful framing. And at COP26, the UN Climate Change Summit, which took place in Glasgow last November, you also fiercely made yourself heard in a room of mostly older male heads of state. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, uh, with all titles uh, respected and preserved. My name is Nisreen Al-Saim. I'm from Sudan. But today, and to make it easier to Mr. Prime Minister of Italy, my name is 
47% of the world population. So anytime you meet me, don't say Nisreen, just say 47% and I will understand. This 47% is only the people who are aged between 15 and 29. We are not yet talking about the people um, 30 to 35, we are not also talking about children, which is by far more than this number. So we are basically represent more than the half of the population of the planet. So it's not a gift or it's not a privilege to listen to us. Actually, it's an obligation because we represent most of the population of the world. You asked those leaders to call you 47%. Can you explain to our listeners what you meant with this and what was the message you were trying to send? The basic idea was that um, I didn't want them to talk to me as Nisreen because I'm a single person. I can go outside and die at any moment. I can maybe leave the sphere and do something else in my life or anything can happen. I wanted them to look at me as the youth representative to understand how much population of the world I'm representing at that moment. And everything I was saying wasn't coming from me as an individual. It was coming from the young people that actually demonstrating outside or joining the negotiation room in different capacities other than like either civil society or with their country delegation. And I was also representing moreover the young people in their villages, in their neighborhoods who are suffering every day from the climate change or will suffer one day from climate change and um, most of the leaders I had in the room were leaders who came through democratic uh, processes and these democratic processes says that I elect X to actually do what is in my benefit and if the benefit of of um, more than 60% of the planet population is actually stopping climate change stopping uh, emissions and they are all going against this will of this majority population then they have to understand they are not democratic anymore. Expo 2020 has made sustainability, climate and biodiversity a core component to its priorities. I want to roll back to your Expo 2020 talk last October where you mentioned your disappointment with the 2015 Paris Agreement uh, on climate change after realizing it was just, quote, ink on paper. We just discovered that it doesn't matter how many accords or many agreements we have, if we did not really start uh, actions and we start implementations, all of these agreements will just uh, stay in the paper and at the end of the day will not even worth the ink that was written with. Um, as a young person who doesn't feel young anymore because we are very much obliged and uh, burdened by the uh, thinking of the future, by the thinking of environment, by the thinking of planet, I really think that it's really high time for all of us not only to consider young people as experts uh, but also to really uh, stop being uh, kids in thoughts and being adults in actions. I wonder what key takeaways uh, from that message do you hope that both young and elder audiences took from it? Well, I think one of the biggest winnings that we are having and we are witnessing every day is more and more people are joining the fight against climate change. More and more people are starting to actually get aware of what's happening around them. And not only that, but actually taking actions to stop that. Also, more and more young people specifically 
pushing um, not only at demonstrating outside but also in a very smart uh, and pragmatic way uh, putting their needs and their priorities to the representative in the parliament for example to the ministers of youth and ministers of education and the ministers of environment of their countries but also sometimes head of states Buenos dias. Good morning, everybody. My name is Shutes Katonatiu. I'm very, very honored to be here today. I think it's amazing to look around the world and see almost 200 countries represented here today because it's really going to take united action from all of us in order to make a difference. I'm 15 years old. And I'm the youth director of an organization called Earth Guardians. And I'm working with young people around the planet to protect our earth, our air, our water, and our atmosphere for my generation and those to follow. I stand before you today representing my entire generation. As well as generations unborn, I stand before you representing the indigenous peoples of this earth and those that will inherit the effects of our climate crisis that we face today as a global community. My father raised me in the Mexica tradition. I learned from my father that all life is sacred. He showed me that every living thing is connected because we all draw life from the same earth and we all drink from the same waters. It's actually the human capital that are joining this movement against climate change is one of the biggest winnings. I remember in 2012, <laughs> Like barely three or four people around me in Sudan, young people were aware of the problem and talking about it. And then two years later, we became 10. Two years later, we became uh, 20. I mean, this increase, this in, like continuous increase in number of people who are joining means that very soon the whole planet will be, again, this very few number of people. And I don't, I don't think that this a few number of people will last uh, in front of the whole population. I hope we reach that point soon enough because unfortunately we are also in a in a race against time. And Nasreen, as you think about the future of the fight to avert the climate emergency, a lot of work in the political space is about balancing action with compromise and diplomacy. I wonder with such a, a gravity of consequences, uh, not just in the future, but really in the current, the present. How do you manage to stay both true to your mission whilst also finding common ground with politicians and negotiators of all backgrounds and coming from all countries? There is always red lines that we cannot cross. And of course, compromising means that delaying and using technicalities that will allow us to find other spaces maybe next year maybe next conference and stuff like this but it doesn't mean that we lie to ourselves and we lie to our partners in discussions and say wow this is well done and clap for them and then just pretend that everything is good no 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 compromising mean means that we don't get everything today but we get some today and some tomorrow because, uh, as you mentioned, some countries doesn't have the privilege of compromising. Some some countries are losing it now. They lost actually. Some countries lost long ago. Um, and some countries, some contexts, some uh, communities doesn't even have some things to 
compromise with. <laughs> they already lost everything or in the way to lose everything. Now we want to show you some incredible images of Tuvalu's foreign minister delivering a speech to the COP26 summit uh, knee-deep in seawater. Wearing a suit and tie, he made it clear just how vulnerable his low-lying Pacific island is to rising sea levels and global warming. Tuvalu is situated midway between Hawaii and Australia, and here is part of his recorded message. In Tuvalu, we are living the realities of climate change, sea level rise, as you stand watching me today at COP26. We cannot wait for speeches when the sea is rising around us all the time. Climate mobility must come to the forefront. We must take bold, alternative action today to secure tomorrow. Faftailasi, Tuvalu Modetu. So yeah, there's a very fine line between lying to yourself and be happy with whatever you get. And by being strategically technical and maybe delay some of the winnings for tomorrow. Because as I mentioned, we are not doing this for our individual interest. We're doing this for the countries that are actually almost disappearing. And this year, the UN Climate Change Summit, uh, COP27, will take place in Egypt, uh, where young people make up the majority of the population, uh, followed by COP28, which will take place in the UAE. I wonder, where do you see hope and optimism towards real tangible progress moving forward in the next year and also in the years to come? I think losing hope is a privilege that we don't have. <laughs> and I always tell young people when I feel that they are down a little bit, I say, okay, let's lose hope and let's all go to the Bahamas and stay in the beach until we all burn out. And then they start laughing. I mean, they say, Nisreen, of course we can't do this. We can't just sit and chill and wait to the world to burn out. And then I said, okay, then why feeling down? I mean, we know that our fight is not easy. We are fighting... To, uh, not only hun like hundreds of thousands of of uh, of corporations and oil industry, we are not fighting a lifestyle of of seven billion people on this planet. We are not only also fighting against 196 or 97 world leader. We are not only fighting um, the nature actually or what we did to nature. We are fighting years of misuse of the natural resources. We are fighting um, something that is not very much easy to actually undo. Historic wildfires, back-to-back -back hurricanes, deadly floods. 2020 was an unprecedented year for the climate. The year started with catastrophic bushfires in Australia, known as Black Summer. Fires killed at least 33 people and nearly 3 billion animals in what would ultimately be called one of the worst wildlife disasters in modern history. So losing hope is not really something we can think about. Um, it's not something we can we can do at any point. It's not even something can we can talk about uh, between ourselves because we have a bigger case and we all knew what we are going through. But there is always a difference between losing hope and being critical. Um, criticizing what's happening and seeing how much we achieved is always um, welcomed. I mean, if a country decided to cut 10% of their emissions by 2030, then we can simply say this is not enough. 
10% of your emissions will not make any difference. So don't give us small peanuts and, and, and ask us to be happy about it because this is not our target. We know our target and we know why we want this target. So there is a difference between climate anxiety and between climate reality. And we have to keep the climate reality, otherwise we will just be selling ourselves lies and, and false hope. I mean, hope doesn't, doesn't come with empty promises uh, or promises that are less than needed. Hope should always come with actions and comes with commitment uh, that we will actually reach the target by the year that we set, because otherwise we will be in an irreversible situation. Absolutely. And and maybe a final note, um, Nasreen, you are, of course, the chair of the UN Secretary General's Youth Advisory Group on Climate Change, and you work day-to-day with young people. Um, what is the message you'd give to young people, actually, in the Middle East and North Africa, uh, where the focus will largely be on those communities uh, over the next two years as COP comes to the region? Um, my suggestion or advice will be get involved. Getting involved, it doesn't mean you have to fly for COP or attend international meetings or something like this. No, get involved can be simply do a small presentation to your schoolmate if you are in school. Um, it can be a, a very nice talk to the neighborhood in one of the days. It can be a discussion with your football team. It can be planting trees campaign in your neighborhood. It can be anything. It, it doesn't matter really how small you think it is, but start and get involved and things will get bigger and bigger. It's simply the, the snowball effect. It starts small, but then it grows, it grows, it grows. As more people are joining, or more in- initiatives are being created. Uh, things start small and then they get bigger. So don't be afraid, don't waste time, just get involved in anything around you and the impact will double itself. Amazing. And we honor the generations of environmentalists and climate activists that you come from. And we also honor all the sparks and the work that you're doing, Nisreen, to really nurture the next generation of climate activists, environmentalists. And we are there with you in that race against time, running with you, and uh, and we look forward to following your journey in the coming years. Thank you so much for speaking with us today and for your presence. Thank you, Tariq. Uh, pleasure is all mine, and I'm equally happy to be here with you today. People on Planet is an official podcast of Expo 2020 Dubai creating a sustainable future for our planet together. Learn more by visiting virtualexpodubai.com or searching Program for People and Planet. People and Planet is produced by Kerning Cultures Network. Episodes are released every second Monday and hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. And if you enjoyed the show, share it with your friends and leave us a review.